welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect Pacific Northwest authors with new listeners and provide advice for inspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. podcast listeners. Thanks so much for coming back to the podcast. Today, I am happy to introduce to you Anne Schroeder. So Anne, would you like to say hi to everybody that's listening? Hello. Awesome. So Anne, let's get started with you telling us what state you live in in the Pacific Northwest. I live in Grants Pass. Well, we moved here about six years ago from California and uh, love it. Love everything about it. Yeah. So what, what brought you to Grants Pass? How did you find Grants Pass? Was it work-related or was it you guys found it from because you heard about it? Well, actually, we were retired and I was writing historical women's fiction, historical uh, romances, and we had run out of territory down there. We'd run out of places to see and we wanted to move to an area that was brand new and had a lot of opportunities and museums and old roads to take our Jeep down and, and explore. And so now I'm, I'm working on the Oregon Trail. Yes. We'll talk a little bit about that because the Oregon Trail is one of my fat. I just love the um, history around it. My kids, when they grew up, they had a really amazing teacher in elementary school that did a whole huge Oregon Trail um, her, her doctorate or her master's she did was that she went back a, along the Oregon Trail one summer and she documented it and then she taught her kids based on what she saw. So it was really fun. Um, good teaching. So we'll get to that because uh, the listeners will be really interested in that. But let me ask you a few more questions so we can get to know you a little bit better. So are, so are you currently retired and you're working as an author full time? Yes. Yes. Oh, I've been, I had a, my own business for 20 years and just kind of, I, I, I sold it to take care of my mother-in-law and then my mother. And when they passed, we, we were kind of fancy free. Oh, nice. So what was your business before being? I had, I had a little, uh, I had taken bake pizza businesses down in California and, uh, I'd worked in banking. I'd worked in radio and television. I just, I, I, I'm one of those people that I just, I like to see how things work. And mm-hmm. I, I had my degree in, in uh, social science, and I loved, I loved working with the teenagers at the, I had three pizza, take and bake pizza restaurants, and I loved, I loved empowering them and teaching them. You know, I would get them in high school and teach them how to hold a broom and wear an apron and punch mm-hmm. a time clock, and, and uh, it was a really meaningful for me and then in the afternoons when no one was in there I would I would write I would think up plots in my head and that's kind of how I started writing that's so awesome and it's so fantastic that you enjoyed mentoring um, young adults going into their first jobs because it's such a skill to really you know not just help them in their first jobs and give them those soft skills they need for life but to enjoy it <laughs> so. well I bought I bought tires for, I bought groceries. I called grandmas when they were sick and feuding with their mothers. I did a lot of things um, 
you, you know, you bloom where you're planted. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. You bloom where you're planted. And that was where I was planted, apparently. Well, I had no idea I was going to get into that. Yeah. And, and you just used the tagline that I wrote my entire April blog on, as bloom where you're planted. Cause I was, oh, really? Yeah, because I was very much struggling with where I was planted my whole life, and now I've embraced it, and it's been a very amazing journey. So fantastic. Well, so great. Um, I do ask this one question that typically can stump authors right out of the bat. So let me ask it, and then you can think about it if you need to. But what's one thing you want your readers to know about you right up front? I mean, that's hard to pick one thing, but what is one thing? One thing. Oh, I could never pick one. Um, I'm tenacious. I cannot not finish a project. And it's important to me. I think that's why I over-research. I love to write the broad picture of, uh, of the history and the era that I'm writing. I love to find everything I can about it and then... And then write maybe 10% of what I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I love it. Um, so I am working on historical fiction. That's where I love to read. So that's where I'm going towards. And I'm a librarian um, by trade outside of what I do now. I'm actually skilled in librarian. So I, I love the research part. I can research forever. <laughs> and I come up with different um, so many different paths that characters should go and, and maybe five different books in researching. So I'm the same way. And I, I could get lost there. Um, definitely. So I love that we have that in common. Um, I have to remind myself, I put a time limit on some of my research to say, okay. Well, you, you have an advantage because <laughs> you're a librarian. You get to borrow your books. I, I go out and buy them all. Oh, I, I bought plenty. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have, um, I have book. I have books stacked. I have mm-hmm. I have books all over my house. My kids come and say, "Ew, mom, yeah, get rid of them. You can have a Kindle. You know, you don't oh, need to buy have no, all these books." There's nothing like a book compared to Kindle. Now I work solely digitally almost now because I I'm just that's where my background is also in IT, and um, and, but I prefer to have a book in hand mm-hmm. if I'm doing research. And I prefer to have um, sticky notes and also, you know, the kind of old way of researching, I guess. But I train and I've taught research for students and I'm creating a, um, a whole course online that I'm going to be publishing in the first of the year with a, a author website on researching for authors that are researching. Um, I'm giving them really good tips and building a portfolio of online resources. Um, so, so yeah, researching is fabulous, but after I moved several of my books, several times, my husband was, um, done with moving and books moving. <laughs> so I had to figure out another way to do it. <laughs> One thing I found that helps me is I, I have an old roll of butcher paper and I, I tape it to my wall when I start a new project and every fact that I find, I have a timeline and I put it in where it belongs. And that way, when I'm finished researching and I have this, this maybe 15-foot timeline of events, I can kind of sit down and just start, I can look at my wall and start writing my story. Oh, that's an awesome idea. I'm going to have to steal that one because <laughs> I'm a sticky note queen. <laughs> yeah, it works better than sticky notes and yeah, um, yeah. post-its and everything because 
uh, it's it's just right there. It's, yeah. Awesome. Well, let's jump in and talk about what you have published and what genre you published because you you I've looked at your website and you have you kind of started out. It looks like with um, a memoir type, and then you've gone into like uh, historical fiction. And I'm fascinated with the time periods that you're working with. So share with the listeners what you've published and what genre you're working in or genres. <laughs> Okay, um, and, and then I'll tell you a little bit about why, how I happen to write all these different things. Yes, that'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> um, I've published um, two memoirs, uh, Branches on the Conejo, which was basically a, a story about my five generations of my family in Southern California in a little place called Moore Park. And, you know, you, you realize that Sometimes a family's history parallels an era, and you have the stories, and and the newcomers who come don't have those stories, and you need to share them. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. Um, my next memoir memoir was called Ordinary Aphrodite, and it was I, I graduated and started college at the very start of the social and sexual revolution, and I I just wanted to write a. a stories about a, a woman who stayed in her faith, stayed in her small community, stayed in her marriage, and had a big life. I mean, I married as a teenager, and mm-hmm. I decided it, 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 they were valuable life lessons mm-hmm. about the small steps of a woman's journey. Fabulous. Then I, um, I, I published... Um, and of uh, the first in my historical uh, mission uh, series uh, set in the uh, missions in California. Mm-hmm. And I wrote stories about the mission Indian women and how much they suffered. Mm-hmm. And the first one was Shalama Moon. And the next one was is Maria Inez. And it came out in 2016. Mm-hmm. And now I finished the third one. The Caballero Sun, which is a story of of Maria Inez's son, and it, it's unpublished. Mm-hmm. And then I, I'm working on the fourth one. So um, a- let's see. Then, in the meantime, I, I I wrote five novels that are yet unpublished, mm-hmm. and I just keep I keep going back to them and trying to make them better and better and better. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, um, it, it seems like I don't I don't want to rush to publication, but I think they're ready now. I just I, I am having questions about how to publish them and in what format. Mm-hmm. Then I um, then I published um, last year. I brought out on Create Space um, a collection of short stories. I had written a lot of short stories and submitted them to um, national magazines and literary magazines, and um, I, so I took all of my short stories that had been published and or one. Uh, writing awards and just mm-hmm. decided to put them into a collection. Well, that's smart. <laughs> that's very smart. <laughs> so, Anne, are you are you uh, self or independent publishing, or are you traditional? Or are you kind of a mix between the both? Well, when I first started in the when I first started writing in the eighties, um, there there were there were two games in town. There was the New York publishers and agents and there were what were called micro publishers 
Oh, okay. If you, you know, or 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 um, vanity publishing, mm-hmm. you could yeah. go that route. But yeah. but there were a lot of micro publishers, publishers who maybe brought out one to three to five books a year. Mm-hmm. And so I met a micro publisher, and he published um, my branches on the Conejo and Ordinary Aphrodite. And uh, so that's how I got my first two books published. Then I kind of just went through this 10, 12-year period where I I really didn't publish anything. I just, I wrote five more novels and I wrote a lot of short stories. Mm -hmm. And um, then I met another micro-publisher who uh, was starting a, a historical Western imprint and she published mine, Shalama Moon. And then she had a stroke and has uh, not been able to operate her publishing house. So I have my rights back now, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of deciding what to do. Got Maria it. Inez was published by Five Star, which is an imprint of Gail Sengage, mm-hmm. uh, hardbound uh, not books for the uh, hardbound Western books for the library trade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Who and Joe. then <laughs> yes, and yes. then Creek. And then Create Space came along, and mm-hmm. um, so my Gifts of Red Pottery, my collection of short stories, I published in Create Space myself. Okay, fantastic. So you have quite an experience of over the years of the different types of publication. So are you leaning towards with the rights that you have for your books and your future works? Are you considering self-publishing and working that way? Or are you looking for something different? And I asked that question because this is the whole genesis of the podcast was that I was doing research as a good librarian and future publishing of what I wanted to do. And I found it fascinating what other authors are doing. Well, when I started, um, everyone needed an agent. Mm-hmm. Everyone wanted an agent. And I had a number of agents. But when I started, it was at the very beginning of the down, kind of the downslide of the publishing business. And within, within just uh, two years, the big box stores came and they ordered all these books from New York from the publishing houses and they stocked their big boxes. And then 90 days later, when it was, then when they bought on a, a net 90, um, on an 89th day, they would box them all back up and send them back. Oh. And then on the 91st day, they'd reorder them. And publishing houses seemed to be just reeling and they let all their mid-list writers go and they just kind of stayed with the big producers, the ones that could actually make them money because mm-hmm. I, I forget the, the percentage, but they really didn't make a lot of money on a lot of authors. It was the big name authors mm-hmm. that were carrying them. Mm-hmm. And so now we're kind of down to the big five. I think it's Hatchet and Harper Collins and McMillan's has a small percentage and Penguin Random is, is, a, is a large one and Simon and Schuster. And so the imprints that have survived are under those, those umbrellas. And the agents that I dealt with, if they submitted your book to one agent, say under HarperCollins, they really didn't want to offend, they didn't want to risk their reputation by maybe submitting to another agent under HarperCollins. 
So if they sent your book out five times, you were done. Or if they, sometimes if they sent it out twice, mm-hmm. um, three times, they, they, they really didn't want to send it out again. Mm-hmm. And one of my novels um, made it to uh, the marketing meetings of a, a large publishing house in New York, um, two different publishing houses twice, and they made it all the way to where the agents take in their five favorite books, and they all sit and discuss it, and, and, they, and they come out with a list of, of the books that they're going to bring out that, that season. And um, at that time, I remember the agent saying that um, they declined, they passed on it because they didn't think they could sell 55,000 copies. The next time it made it to New York, they they passed on it because they didn't think they could sell 22,000 oh copies. Now, this was... And this was before internet, kind of, yeah, um, yeah. certainly before social media. Yeah. And um, so at, at that point, she was done. You know, she, yeah, yeah. she just didn't want. So um, I, I would go to conferences and I would learn, um, you know, uh, other ways of doing things. And for me, it's been more of a learning I mean, the, 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 the business of learning the business of writing has been as fascinating as, as publishing the books. Yeah. You know, I've really enjoyed um, being in the business of learning the business. Yeah, and it certainly uh, is a business, learning the business of it, right? <laughs> it's like oh, a- yes. And I, I mean, wow. we used to have, we used to get advice like, every week you need to go to the library and read Publishers Weekly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Read it, you know, cover to cover, the magazine. And, um, you know, nobody does that. I I mean, I don't think writers do that anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What an awesome history. I didn't know all of that because I obviously, um, you have probably listen to some of the other podcasts. I, I've been telling a little bits and stories. I stopped and started writing um, and wanting to publish work. Um, but it was more, my last attempt in looking at it was still in the vanity stages. We didn't have Amazon and create space and my space uh, wasn't even around yet. So Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook weren't even a thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and at that time it was still dial-up internet for you that are listening that know the history of the computer world, and so that's when I kind of stopped. Uh, I didn't look any further. Um, just came back into this idea, and as I started to work on the idea of publishing my work, I've discovered independent publishing has developed to such a phenomenal stage where you don't have to necessarily go traditional any longer um, and you don't have to pursue an agent relationship. Not that I would be opposed to it, but it's just very interesting, the industry now. And I didn't know that history. So thank you for sharing that with us. I love it. I have a couple of questions based on it. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so um, my main question was, you know, you did have a, an agent, you worked with several agents, um, there are still a lot of authors that I interview and that I'm talking to that are relatively new um, that are still very interested in, in finding an agent. What would be your advice to them from your experience about agents? Well, I, I think the reason that I didn't find a good match with an agent is because I wasn't really clear on what I was writing. Oh, okay. um, and everyone gave me the same advice. You need to find a genre and stick with it. If you're going to write romance, write 
category romances. Um, I have a, a, a wonderful woman who would love to agent me. I adore her. But she needs for me to write three novels, three romances a year because they kind of put them on the assembly line in the publishing houses and they, they pop them out for a season and then it's gone and they, you know, by then you finished your next one and it, it, you know, Harlequins kind of did that um, where not, maybe not a lot of research or, but you know, your era and you know, your you kind of write the same story with different characters and mm-hmm. without demeaning them, it's, it's easier than I, I mean, I start, I start from scratch every single time and it takes me maybe three years, two years to write a novel. And so that wasn't a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Miss. I mean, the, I think the people who are writing romances, who are writing mysteries, who are writing action adventure, you know, men's adventure. I, I think it's easier to find a an agent because you are a more saleable quantity qu- uh, quantity than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how I started writing is I I used I had a critique group and mm-hmm. they were mostly older women and they weren't really writing like they used to, but they had all this this amazing amount of experience and knowledge and I was probably 35 and I would we would meet twice a month and I would I would go home and I would write a short story and in in two weeks I would take it and read it and they would offer me critiques and then I would go home and spend the first week polishing that one and then I would set it aside and then I would start the second week I would write another story and take it and read it. And I did that for years. And awesome. so I was in an extremely prolific era of, of be- between the downtime at my pizza stores where I could just sit and think mm-hmm. and having these women, basically professional editors um, wow. helping me. And, and I had a man who was older and, we would meet at a cafe and every, every week and he would just ask me questions about my novels, about my manuscripts. And, and it, he would, he was so annoying because he wanted me to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And I remember once he said, well, what is the, what is the lighting like in, in, in Escobar's cantina? And I, I just flared out at him, at him and I said, Oh, I don't know. It's it's a wheel from Orozco, the woodcutter's cart, and in the last weeks of his death, he traded it for something that had more meaning. He traded it for pulque at Escobar's Cantina, and it had five lights and just enough to be able to, you know, see the shadows, but not the full man's faces in the corner. And you know, I had this 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 thing he dragged out of my subconscious and it became just this amazing this light in this cantina became a a character in this story and it came from nowhere it came from this annoyance this man just wouldn't stop asking me questions and I realized he was making me be so he was dragging depth and 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 characters out of me and, and it, during this period of, of writing, what I was doing is I was creating short stories. And, and one day I kind of 
sat down to organize my short stories, and I put I put several in a in a folder that said Western, and several in you know a, a different folder that seemed to be similar. And then I started to kind of thumb through them, and I realized that what I had been doing for maybe three five years was I had been writing the character vignettes of these B. B storylines oh. for a novel, and they all fit together. Oh, how and, awesome! <laughs> and um, um, Shalama Moon is is you, you would not know it, but they're just. I mean, at the point that I was writing that story, I just cut and pasted maybe an eight page short story and dropped it in. It was a chapter, oh, and it introduced the character, and then I just wove her through, and then it probably. Each of my novels has four or five short stories that I had written, never even dreaming I was that they had anything to do with each other. Oh, I absolutely love that. And I am sitting here just being very jealous of the idea that you had such great support, even though the annoying gentleman, you know, he was doing a fabulous service. He was wonderful. Right? He was doing a very great service. I don't I, I have a writer's group, but we haven't started to work on critiquing yet. And we're just kind of getting started. And I just crave that part of it um, right now, as long as it's kind and good. You know, it's not. And it, you know what? What you'll find is it's not going to be kind and good all yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think that what was amazing about these women is they were so generous. And, and yet, I mean, I was 35 and I remember writing a line one day and it said, um, I woke up that morning feeling like a 60 year old woman. Yeah. And one of them said, and what does that mean? And I said, Oh, you know, um, arthritic, tired, cranky, dry mouth. Um, and, and they looked at each other and kind of smiled. And one of them said something to me that changed my life. She said, we all age differently. She said, I had my best, sex when I was 74 <laughs> I had an affair with a man and we would still be together but he died oh and I looked at her and I was thinking sex at your age <laughs> and then I was thinking well how old are you and then I and all I could say was why don't you write about this we are so afraid to get old because yeah. all we ever hear of is dryness and you know personal yeah. areas and and yeah. cranky and arthritis all this kind of stuff no one ever tells us there's something positive about getting old. True. And it is. And, 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 and she said, she just looked at me and she said, and when I said, why don't you write about that? She said, why don't you? <laughs> and it kind of started me on a journey of writing about disenfranchised women mm -hmm. and minorities and, and um, beat up men, crippled men, and, you know, the, the, the people, the throwaway people in this manifest destiny attitude that white males had about, you know, taking this land, this raw land that was the West and conquering it. And it, they left a lot of victims behind in order to make land grabs. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I write about the victims. I, mean, I don't care about the man taking his cattle to the rail head. I care about the wife that's left at home. I mean, mm -hmm. she's got three kids and mm -hmm. maybe it, 
I care about her. what she's thinking, what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. I have the same line of thoughts when I do research. I, I do. My characters are based around female situations around society and time periods. So absolutely fascinating. So let me ask you this question. You might, I feel like you kind of touched on it just a little bit, but what is your inspiration? What keeps you going? And as an author, you know, sometimes you feel like the character has channeled you (laughs) and has chosen you to write this story. And and I mean, I used to take a walk and there was this tree, this huge mission oak tree down in California, and, and it would just shimmer and I would stand under it and I could feel the energy. And one day I, I met an older Indian woman and I told her this and she said, she's, she's calling to you, stand there and tell you, she tells you what she wants you to, to know. And that's how I started writing about Maria Inez. And I went to the the Linen Tribal Council, and I got Indian women to help me write the story about their great-great-great-great-grandmother. And, mm. um, and sometimes one of my stories I just, I just wrote um, came from, I, I, was, I was settling my mother's estate, and there was an old white Bible, and I picked it up, and I thought it was hers, and I and a slip of paper came out, a little letter, and it was a note from an older lady to another older lady who they and they had been class mm-hmm. childhood friends. Mm-hmm. And it was it was the germ that I used to write this story about these two women mm-hmm. um, remembering their childhood together. And um, you know, you, you you get this feeling that you're supposed to write, that this is your life's job. This is the task you've been given. And if you don't do it well, then you miss your opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, oh, some- absolutely true. And, and you're inspiring me. Listening to you just is energizing me, and because I've been in a little bit of a rut with a lot going on in my life. And you're just reminding me so much of why some of us write. <laughs> so I love and it. sometimes... Sometimes it's an overheard conversation, and sometimes it's something unexplored in myself. And I'm really writing to, to really track down why I feel the way I do, and is it right or is it wrong? And a, and a lot of times it's not right or wrong. It's just it just is. Mm-hmm. And I think you can come to peace with yourself, and you can grow as a person by, you know, a lot of people journal. Mm-hmm. I don't journal. I put my my thoughts into characters and I let them battle it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I did start out journaling when I was much younger in high school and early days of college. I did lots and lots of journaling. Um, and it was very therapeutic for that time. And now you're right for me, my characters are, are take on a lot of the, um, stuff I'm dealing with and they, and I work it out with them in the, in the plots and the scenes. And mm-hmm. sometimes it works out better than it did for me per- personally. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> not always, right? <laughs> and, and, and sometimes, um, sometimes you're writing about your better self. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I love this exploration and this is 
Wonderful. Um, I, I love your history, the fact that you have so much to share with us. And um, But what I really am dying now is to hear your story that you will share with us and the readers. So why don't you set the stage for us and the listeners, share briefly the situation, the book title, and what you can about the character background, and then go ahead and get started and read for us. Okay. This, what I'm going to read is from my newest a novel that was uh, published by Prairie Rose Publications. They do uh, historical Western romances. It's called Walk the Promise Road, a novel of the Oregon Trail. And my characters, my, my protagonists, Mary and Philip Rogers, are first cousins, and she has lost her family, and she wants to go with Philip to to Oregon, where he's going to meet up with his fiancée, the love of his life. And so they, she kind of has this plan that she will, they can pretend to be married, but if they're found out, the wagon master's going to make them marry because the mores of the time are very strict, and they can't be two unmarried single people traveling together. So they, they have this need to keep their secret. Well, of course, she falls immediately um, for this very annoying half Umatilla, half Scots uh, wagon, the, the, the scout for the wagon train. And um, so who, who really becomes friends with her cousin Philip and spends a lot of time at the wagon. And um, so that's kind of you know, this, this dance, and I love it because I did not want to ride a bodice ripper, so I, I kind of did the anti-bodice ripper. I kind of did this, you know, they have this angst, this romantic sexual angst that they can't act on, and it makes, it made it really intriguing and, and fun. And then I started every chapter with a journal entry, so it has this feel, the novel has a feel of being really a real story. So this is chapter 12, and this is, and I and I chose this just to show a little vignette of the relationship that the women had with each other as they traveled along. This is chapter 12. May 4th, 1848. We passed tribes of Indians who seem quite friendly and accustomed to trade. We grow used to having fresh corn wash and fish in trade for flannel shirts, needles, and knives, especially those designed by Mr. Bowie. How fortuitous that the guidebooks advised us to bring trading items, for the barter is advantageous to all concerned. The wagon train had stopped at the big Blue River crossing while they waited for the water to recede. True to the wagon master's warning, Folks did their churching and praying on the days they halted, not the other way around. Lillian was beside herself as she joined Mary the next afternoon. Oh, what a day. I've been holding the Johnson baby. He's a mite fussy with the storm coming on. His ma's got a touch of the heat prostrate. It's no wonder. It must be near 100 today and muggy to beat all. If I had an egg, I told Orv, I'd cook it right atop his bald head. He'd probably eat it, too, much as he loves fried eggs. 
She gave her husband a fond look and a wave, which he returned with a, Howdy there, sweet cakes. That baby was fussing, so I thought I'd have a turn at him. Not much I can't remember about getting a baby over what ails him. Anyway, the baby upchucked his dinner all over me, and I had to give him back to his father while I climbed up and changed. Mary's heart sank. No, it couldn't be. It wouldn't be fair. In a trembling voice, she demanded, Did you wash up good after handling the baby? Why are you asking that, honey? Lillian turned to Mary with a look of dread, almost like she knew what was coming next. She asked again, Why, Mary? Mrs. Johnson died a few minutes ago of cholera, Mary said. The baby is sick and fading fast. Mr. Johnson is with them now, alone in the wagon. She, she studied the horizon, but it held no answers. Oh, Lillian, what are we going to do? Lillian stood ramrod straight, facing the sunset as the last rays of the fading day shone red on her fine face and slipped behind the western horizon. Her face reflected fear. As she turned, at last she turned, and in doing so, seemed a different woman. The fear was gone, along with the panic. She seemed in control, even tranquil. We do nothing, Miss Mary. You get on back to my young'uns and see to their supper. Say nothing to no one. I got troubles enough without anyone interfering. Lillian, I want to help. Then, girls, do as I say. Keep the young'uns away till we see if I come down with it. You can do that much for me and maybe save my kin in the bargain. If you don't think that would be a blessing to me, it's because you ain't got no child of your own. I die of death for every one of mine. Mary left Lillian sitting on the riverbank, looking far more composed than she herself felt. She approached the wagons with a hope that she could control her fear. Hello there, Virginia and Nellie. Your mama asked that I fix supper with you tonight. Let's combine our efforts. Won't that be a nice change? Where's Ma? Wasn't she down with you? Nellie started in the direction of the river. I'll find her. We can have a, a campfire and pop us some corn. Pa might dance a jig, especially if he had us a nip from the jug he keeps under the seat where he thinks Ma don't know. Mary called. Wait, Nellie. Your Ma said to tell you she's bone tired and just wants to soak her feet in the cool water and be alone. Is she sick? Nellie glanced up at Mary. Drawing both girls to the side, she improvised. Actually, from what she's been telling me, I think she's suffering the change of life. She says she gets touchy over nothing and just wants to be alone sometimes. Let's give her a little time. It must be hard, all of us crowded together like we are. She had a thought. I should be an actress like that Mrs. Siddons in New York City. She probably never played such a difficult role in her whole life. Virginie pulled her sister back. Mary's right. Let's leave Ma alone. We're always needing her for something. It's her turn. Dinner went off more or less without a hitch until Nellie lost her balance near the cook fire and caught the hem of her dress on fire. Ned stopped, stomped the flame out with his big boot and tore the waist, so Nellie hauled off and smacked him. Virginie tripped on 
Ned's other foot and nearly spilled the big pan of fried potatoes she was carrying. But the fried fish and beans and dried apple cobbler were finally ready. Save a plate for Ma. She'll be along soon. The absence of Ma Stoberson was an event to remember. She had never missed a meal in her own home except for the birth of each of her children. And even then she hollered instructions from her little room. So the children knew she was still in charge. But she'd done a good job. Both the girls were fine cooks and homemakers. Long after the younger children were asleep, Lillian appeared at the edge of the camp, careful to keep her distance. My stars, but something smells good. Even if I did left my appetite for vittles out there on the prairie, I had myself a little nap, but I swear I'm as surly as a bear. I'll thank you all to just leave me be. She moved closer to the fire, holding the soiled dress she had changed out of after holding the Johnson baby. She let a corner of it trail into the fire and in an exaggerated attempt to retrieve it, pushed more of it in until the whole dress was aflame. Lordy, just look what I've done. I'll be hard pressed to get myself to Oregon if I don't keep my wits about me better than that. What a shame. Her daughters stared as if they had been turned to stone. Their ma had made a mistake especially one as wasteful as that. Their ma had never made a misstep in all the years they had been copying her actions. But since Nellie had nearly fallen into the fire herself, her mother's clumsiness didn't seem nearly so impossible. Mary, would you fetch my bedroll? Lillian asked in a casual tone. I got a hankering to sleep out by myself like you do. Thought maybe tonight would be the night. Just look at all them stars. Oh, Ma, can we sleep out with you? Well, then I wouldn't be alone, would I? Lillian gave a slight shake of her head and turned away. Mary exchanged glances with Virginie. Remember what I told you about your Ma's condition? I'll bet with the change of life, she's feeling some hot flashes and having trouble sleeping in that stuffy tent. You girls know what I'm talking about, don't you? Best get yourselves to bed and let her have her time. She gave them a pointed woman-to-woman look. After Lillian disappeared into the night, Mary continued to sit at the fireside. How long would it take, a day, two days, before they would know? It had already been 12 scorching hours since Lillian had held the Johnson baby. How many times had she kissed the child, brushed his tears away with her lips, wiped his nose? and did all the things a loving mother does for a fussy little one. The baby had seemed so normal. He'd played with Lillian's bonnet strings, with her face. They'd even shared a drink of water from a tin cup, the same cup the Turlock family had used, and the Johnsons. <sighs> Weary and discouraged, Mary made her way to bed, glad that her, hus- her cousin, Philip, was occupied elsewhere. Tomorrow would be a long day for them all. In the morning, Lillian declined the bite of dinner her daughters had saved from the night before. After taking a long drink from the tin cup, she instructed Mary to leave it with her. Best you boil the drinking water from now on, Mary, and tell the girls to do the same. I brought some ginger tea. Have them drink that. We can't be too careful. And Mary, don't come around me no more. By noon, Lillian was twisting in agony. 
Mary examined the older woman from a distance and blanched at what she saw. Lillian's cheeks were flushed and her eyes held the glassy look of fever. Mary searched under the wagon seat for Orville's jug and fetched a drink of whiskey that temporarily soothed her friend. But soon Lillian's pain became excruciating. She began vomiting black bile and her eyes expressed the despair she tried to hold back. Mary soaked a rag with more whiskey and applied it to her friend's belly. There was little else she could do. Go away, Mary. See that none of my family comes around. When I'm gone, bury the bedding with me. Please don't let none of my babies die. As Mary walked back to her own wagon, she understood the greatness in her mother that had compelled her to aid strangers who had no one else to tend them. In her hour of compassion for Lillian, Mary forgave her mother for dying. From the left, a horse approached at a gallop. Through her tears, Mary tried to see which rider blocked her way to the Stoberson camp. Lucas studied the dark smudges around Mary's eyes and the tears streaming down her cheeks. When her dull eyes met his, the color in his face faded. Trouble here? he asked sliding from his stallion with a force that caused the with, with a force that caused the horse to shy he grasped her shoulders mrs rogers talk to me her voice quivered it's it's lillian she she's got the cholera his eyes grew hard that's trouble for sure you weren't with her were you he glanced closer and scowled damn it woman why because she's my friend, and my mother died, and I was angry. Oh, Lucas, I'm so sorry. He gripped her with both hands and made a desperate inspection, as though he could read the answers in her face. Did you touch her body fluids? She nodded. Yes. No. He squeezed his eyes shut, and she added, she wouldn't let me come close. She wants to end it with her. His face showed a shadow of relief, and his tone softened. Maybe there's a chance. My mother used a plant that grows a half day's ride south of here. It might help. I'll be back by evening. Stay away. You can't help her. You hear me? A wild root can't help me. Only God can do that. He acted as though he didn't hear her. Have some water boiling when I return tonight. And Mary, stay away. Promise me. I will be careful, she promised but only that. Absolutely beautiful, Anne. Thank you for sharing that. And now I have to read the whole book. <laughs> beautiful and, and heartbreaking too. <laughs> you know, I, when I finished it, I sent it in. I sent the manuscript into um, Michael Smith, who was um, at that time, I believe the head of the Oregon Trail Preservation Committee. Mm -hmm. And he read it and, made two small small suggestions to change, and he said it was the most accurate novel I've, he'd ever read on the trail. Oh, wonderful. So listeners, if you hear that, we want to read a very accurate novel of the Oregon Trail, which is a fascinating um, topic in of itself. Definitely go and find Anne's books. Um, her links will be in the show notes, so go and find her. And Anne, we will have you back on. Listening to you read is just really soothing. I, I'm enjoying it. So <laughs> we'll have you back with another book. How's that? <laughs> Good. Good. Awesome. 
Well, thank you. You know, one of the things that people can do, if they find a an author, that if they hear about an author, the kindest thing they can do is go to Amazon and read the reviews because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't lie. They don't. And, and what people say about mine, I mean, it was so cute. One reviewer said, I was so relieved when we made it to Oregon City. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's awesome. What a great response from a reader that they felt so involved in the book. So absolutely. Well, thank you, Anne, for being on the podcast and sharing your insights with us. I appreciate it. And we will definitely have you back for more in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hoped you loved hearing from the author as much as we did. If you did enjoy the author, make sure you find them on social media. Buy their book and write a review. Are you a published author and would like to be featured on the podcast? Visit us at our website to learn more. You can help support the production of this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 